Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. We're here. We're here. Physically. <laughs> Physically, mentally, spiritually. Well. It is the week of September 19th, 2023 to September 22nd, 2023. And uh, I just want to say welcome to all the new lawyers who were just signed in this week. Signed in. Signed in. Yes, you you signed on the dotted line. You might not have known it, but you signed on a (laughs) dotted line. You signed it all the way. Sealed. Delivered. Well, that's true. Signs that when they take your fingerprints, oh yeah, that's when they lock you in. Yeah, you're stuck. You're stuck forever after that. And then no matter what you touch, you're always going to be, you know, a lawyer. Yeah. Whether you practice or not, you're a lawyer. You're a lawyer. Those fingerprints have been fingerprinted, and you are a lawyer. That's true, though. Big congratulations. That's a that's a giant step. It yeah. is true. Did, it, did, did, you, did you think I was making that up for a second? Or? Uh, I lost all track of time. Is it September? I thought it was July. No, it does feel a little July, uh, but it's September, and it rained a lot. Let's see what else. That's all I got. Oh, I have a very important announcement. Not an important announcement. Important discovery for any minivan drivers, um, and I'll tell it at the end. Oh, I like that. Um, before we, since we're gonna have the mini minivan drivers, and you brought it up, one one piece of advice to new lawyers starting out. If anyone's listening to that, what, what would be your one? Um, don't take it too seriously. That's a good one. I it's like a, that. it's important. Obviously, this is people's lives, but I mean, it's day to day. It's a job. Yeah. So that's fair. What about you? Don't be afraid to ask questions. Yeah, that's a better one. That's a safer route. Good job. All right, what do we got for ex parte summary this week? All right, first case we have is State v. Resnicek. Hearsay. I have Sailor v. State, and that is the State Tort Claims Act claim preclusion. All right, get started with you, Carson. Oh, so you have a case this week? That's neat. A full case? An actual case? First time in like three, four weeks? Are people happy about that? You get to hear... John Brandt's voice for more than 30 seconds on the pod today. I mean, I didn't say it was, you know, in-depth or important. I no one can say... see I'm playing the world's smallest violin for John as he has to. Oh, but everybody wants to hear Carson first. So yeah, let's, right, let's jump first. in. Let's go right ahead. All right, so we start out with State v. Resnicek. This is an appeal from a bench trial conviction in the county court of Douglas County uh, for misdemeanor shoplifting and a sentence of a $100 fine. That had been appealed to the district court, uh, affirmed that sentence from the county court, and now we have the appeal at the Nebraska Supreme Court. And the appeal is on the basis of a hearsay objection and then a um, overruling of that hearsay objection. And so the basics of the facts here are that there was a um, employee of a department store who was in the loss prevention department. And basically that means they watch live surveillance footage of all of these shoppers and uh, watch individuals who may be involved in some sort of uh, theft or shoplifting. And so here uh, Resnicek was carrying a large purse and had nine pairs of women's shorts and carried them to a fitting room um, at that point in time. Is that is that weird? Not yet. <laughs> But okay. it's relevant. All the right, fitting room right is ahead. relevant. The facts are uh, whatever. The facts <laughs> are relevant. So carries them into the fitting room um, and then all of a sudden leaves, does not leave the shorts in the fitting room, and then uh, takes them out into the parking lot at that point in time. Um, Teets 
intercepts her and says, hey, uh, you know, I think you've got some things that you've uh, taken. Um, And during this point in time, the store manager um, went and checked the fitting room and checked for merchandise and uh, radioed and said that um, she did not find any uh, merchandise in the changing room. And so that's why that fact is relevant, because uh, the basis of the argument uh, for Reznicek is that she had went into the fitting room, decided that the shorts were too see-through, had left them there, and then had left the store. And so at the time of trial, of course, uh, the the star witness for the state is the loss uh, prevention uh, officer. And Uh, At that point in time, uh, Teets was allowed to testify not only to what he was told, but then he also testified to Crum telling him uh, that she did not find any shorts in the fitting room, which is where uh, the defense had objected on the basis of hearsay. And so here, the uh, exception that the court had found was present sense impression. And I I think everyone... uh, if you're a non-lawyer and all the lawyers here, I mean, hearsay is just our favorite thing, isn't it? I mean, we just, we think about hearsay and it's just, it's something we absolutely love to deal with. Yeah. If I could marry a legal theory, um, hearsay would be the one. Hearsay would be the one. Mm -hmm. Man, she would have many personalities. (laughs) She would. And uh, a complete enigma that I can't quite fully grasp or understand. Yeah, exactly. And so here, I guess we get another chance to try to understand a little bit of it. And Uh, Again, I'm not going to hide the ball. This entire opinion is basically about the uh, present sense impression exception and whether or not we have it here. And basically, the three requirements for the present sense impression exception is that the statement must be must describe or explain the event that was perceived. The declarant must have been in uh, must have, in fact, perceived the event described and the description must be substantially um, contemporaneous with the event in question. And so basically the the big issue here is what is contemporaneous. That's kind of always the issue with present sense impression and the three factors that they outline here from a couple of different um from a couple of different treatises is that there is no loss of memory, there is little or no time for calculated misstatement, and then there um they are usually made uh, to a person who has equal opportunity to observe and check misstatements. And so uh, here, basically, they find that that this does fit the exception. They go through um, everything that um, occurs with a present sense impression and then deal with the fact that uh, Crumb's declaration uh, did fit that. And, you know, basically, they found that um, it was happening within mere minutes of the time that the store manager had looked inside the fitting room and then uh, that she radioed uh, teats. And so that was, um, you know, a a short, short period of time. And so that uh, fit there that no more than three minutes um, elapsing during that period of time uh, basically still made it a present sense impression. And then they found that it fit the other elements uh, within Nebraska Revised Statute Section 27-803, subsection 1. And so they um, affirmed the decision of the district court. All right. So if you are trying to get some evidence in, trying to have some hearsay uh, that you want to find an exception for, this sounds like a really good discussion of present sense impression, which, you know, you can always 
maybe couch something is that not always but there's some way to kind of color things and well and i think the value here is there is uh two treatises that are cited to and a south dakota south dakota supreme court opinion and so anytime you get things that are actually cited to now you actually have some other authority that you can draw from that the nebraska supreme court has uh, cited to give you uh, something to argue when you are looking at that exception sounds great okay i have sailor v state this is a uh, inmate appeal from a state tort claims act. Um, this goes all the way back from 2010. Um, and then there were some other matters in 2017. So there was a lower court dismissed the, um, complaint for claim preclusion or res judicata. The, there was, there's two complaints here that were filed way back in 2017. So there was an initial complaint that was filed regarding some uh, medical, uh, treatment that uh, Mr. Saylor uh, alleged to have received or didn't receive adequately. So he files this initial complaint and then seven days later files another complaint. And the initial complaint was um, sent up to removed to federal court. So the initial complaint goes up to federal court. The second complaint that was filed seven days later was amended and um, it was kind of just stayed while the federal court dealt with the uh, initial complaint. So both one and two were joined at the request of the state for a motion to dismiss, which was at the request of everybody transferred into a motion for summary judgment uh, and evidence was uh, produced at that hearing. The first complaint, the one that went up to the federal court and then back down, it was remanded um, back to the state court, was dismissed with prejudice because it was barred by the State Tort Claims Act because it uh, was beyond the statute of limitations, so it was dismissed. And then the second claim that he was that was filed um, seven days later was dismissed with prejudice because of failure to comply with the pre-suit requirements of the State Tort Claims Act. So those were appealed. Um, and then in an initial set of uh, appellate rulings, the first was affirmed, and uh, the first dismissal that was barred by the statute of limitations, that was re- um, affirmed. And then the second appeal regarding the failure to comply with the pre-suit requirements, that was actually reversed and sent back down. Now, that's a procedural history that gets us to this case. So this case gets us, uh, after it was reversed and remanded, the state filed another motion um, to dismiss, and they said, hey, all of these claims could have been brought up in that first case, uh, first claim, you know, the one that you dismissed for, and that was affirmed for failure to state a claim uh, upon release, or excuse me, that was dismissed for um, being beyond the statute of limitations. So, hey, you could have brought them all in that one, you didn't, and because of that, um, a look at the pleadings itself, re- uh, res judicata or claim preclusion should apply, and it should be dismissed because you could have brought those claims in the first action. There is an excellent law chunk on claim preclusion. I really like claim preclusion for some weird reason uh, and res judicata. I, I don't know. I'm one of those people. So I, I really like uh, that analysis. It's careful you're labeling yourself. I know, but it's beautiful to me. That analysis, it's a, almost like a double jeopardy analysis in claim preclusion. I, I like I like that analysis. I have a favorite analysis. Is that weird? <laughs> Point for using res judicata <laughs> in the podcast. All right, here just, we go. I'm just saying it's 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 my favorite one. So yeah. anyway, it was held here uh, supplementary to the first action, and it was not a distinct action. So the second um, complaint was not 
um, distinct from the first action. So claim preclusion applies. And he, since he could have brought it in the first action but failed to do so, it is claim preclusion. He's precluded, and this is affirmed on appeal. But uh, anyway, it's a great discussion here of claim preclusion, um, res judicata, and uh, you know those kinds of things. And and the state tort claims act too, as well. If you have one of those uh, issues, take a look at that. Otherwise affirmed. Thanks. Okay, I think we're done with the Nebraska Supreme Court, right? We are. Let's go to Court of Appeals. All right, so the next case we come to is in the interest of Madison S. and Matthew S., and this is an appeal from a termination of parental rights in the Lancaster County Court, uh, and this is the the father's appeal from this uh, termination of parental rights. Um, and this was a termination of parental rights to twins that were born in January of 2018. Um, and essentially what happens here in a sequence of events is that um, in uh, approximately uh, 2019 to 2020, there was an incident between uh, Matthew uh, and um, the uh, mother of his children, um, and basically he uh, stopped having contact with them at that point in time. The children were then removed from uh, the mother's care in March of 2021, um, and then were in uh, placement with the state of Nebraska since that time. Um, since 2020, uh, Matthew Sr. had been incarcerated in Ohio. Uh, at the time of the uh, termination of parental rights on Matthew, Heather had uh, already voluntarily, or the mother had already voluntarily relinquished her parental rights to the children, and so she was not a part of this appeal. And basically the issue on appeal, and we've had a few of these cases, and a few of them have resulted in reversals, uh, was the fact that the father was in uh, prison and incarcerated during the time of this case. And so the Court of Appeals deals with this by basically saying that, again, while it is not a sole uh, factor and it's not dispositive, it is a factor uh, when you are incarcerated. And while the incarceration itself, um, and again, we just talk about Law chunks. I thought this was an interesting law chunk uh, where the Court of Appeals says that although incarceration itself may be involuntary as far as a parent is concerned, the criminal conduct causing the incarceration is voluntary. And so um, I only bring that one up because we've had a number of reversals uh, based on incarcerations and parents still meeting case plan goals. But this is one where um, the criminal conduct was such that uh, it looked like there was going to be some issues. Uh, one being released, it was a robbery, so I think there was a pretty lengthy prison sentence. And then second, uh, there were some real questions about ability to provide stable living uh, once uh, the father was released. And then third, because there had been such limited contact with the children for basically the entirety of their lives since he had been removed from their lives when they were essentially uh, 18 months or, or somewhere thereabout, uh, it was going to take incredible amounts of therapy, it looked like, to uh, be able to have some sort of parent-child relationship, and so therefore the Court of Appeals affirmed the termination of parental rights. State v. Timothy, this is a criminal plea-based conviction for two counts of contributing to a delinquency of a minor and two counts of procuring alcohol to a minor. Um, Mr. Timothy was uh, sentenced to 180 days concurrent with eight days time served. He makes uh, claims on appeal for excessive sentence and ineffective assistance of counsel. Um, for the ex excessive sentence uh, assignment of error, uh, they um, find that it was within the statutory range and there was no abuse of discretion. Um, and for the f uh, ins uh, ineffective assistance of counsel, there was claims that he failed to depose um, the minor children in order to 
um, provide some defenses and, and some information that would have lead to a different result, I suppose, or fail and failure to cons, um, consult with the defendant regarding discovery and potential defenses. For the failure to depose uh, assignment of error or section of the assignment of error of ineffective assistance of counsel, they said that the record was insufficient. And for the failure to consult uh, when uh, regarding discovery and defenses, the uh, Court of Appeals here said there was not sufficiently pled. So what about the discovery or what about the defenses would have led to a different result? I think those are very difficult claims to bring on a plea-based conviction when there's a record indicating that um, you know, the, where the defendant is affirmatively stating that they didn't have, uh, you know, any defenses that they didn't share and they had adequate time to review discovery. I think that's a difficult, uh, claim to make. And, uh, the court of appeals here affirms. I think that's it. I think that is it. What a quick week. I was all Only right. Four opinions. So, um, here we get to the important part. <laughs> Sorry to all my fellow mini van drivers. You're not one, right? Do you have a minivan? No. Yeah, I did that. I think they'd put me on a list for that. <laughs> if you were running around and in a minivan. minivan, yeah, I think that would be. Oh, that would be fun. I think there's a list out so there. So, my fellow minivan drivers, uh, come closer. I, I need to speak to you about what could happen to you in your world. Um, so, for the past six months here, my wife has been complaining uh, when she's driving our uh, 2017 Toyota Sienna that when she takes a left turn, she hears a clunk and a crunch. So she, you know, and it drives her nuts. So she takes a left turn, she hits a bump, crunch or click or something. So she does that every single time. And then uh, I take it into the dealership, a dealership here in town, and they look at it and they go, oh yeah, this will fix it. You need a new rod. That'll be $500. Okay, new rod. And my wife drives the van and guess what? Uh, Clunk, chunk, uh, every left turn. And then I drive it. I'm like, okay, I think she's overreacting. I'm like, nope, they're still there. Down from there. So I take it back to the dealership. I say, hey, uh, you got uh, you got a problem here. Uh, we we just gave you 500 bucks, and there's still this chunk and clunk. And they go, oh, okay. Well, what you really need are new struts. So they get us struts. Yeah. And uh, oh, that'll be $1,600 uh, for the new struts. So here you go. And I go, okay, finally, whatever, you know, so she doesn't, we don't complain about this anymore. <laughs> We're able to take left turns without uh, cringing every single time. So um, I go do that and then I get the new struts and I pay them the money and, and um, then I drive around and guess what happens, Carson? What happens? I take a left turn and there's a, a, a clunk and a crunch. And so I say, we're going to solve this. I take it to an actual dealership uh, for Toyotas in Lincoln, Nebraska who shall remain nameless. And I go to them and I say, hey, there's this chunk and clunk when we take a left. They look at it for 15 minutes. They call me on the phone and they say, yeah, uh, we got it fixed. I said, oh, what do I do? They're like, no, don't worry about it. So uh, I go back there and they say, what happened was a rock, about an inch and a half rock got stuck in the wheel. And you could you could see, he, said, he showed me where it rubbed against the thing. Um, where it rubbed against the vehicle and, ch- and caused all those clunks and chunks. And he said, uh, yeah, just it's th- that happens sometimes. We know it here at the dealer, but other people don't know it. Um, don't worry about it. That hurts. It did hurt, Carson. But you got new struts. I do have new struts, and it rides great now. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to complain too much, but what I'm trying to tell my fellow minivan drivers is if you have a crunch or a tick or something when you take a left, 
maybe have your person look for rocks. That's all look I'm saying. Look for the rock. All right. That was uh, Point 2 Law Review brought to you by Anderson, Klein, Brewster, and Brandt. Offices in Kearney, Holdridge, and Minden. Um, go back to episode one for the disclaimer. Anything else? I don't think so. All right. Well, have a good week, everybody. And you are? I'm John Brandt. And I'm Carson Messers. Oh, thank you for that. Perfect. Okay, have a good week. <laughs>